Well, good morning, everyone. I'd invite you to stand, please, if you would. Something I do when I, uh, I give a message is I'd like to, uh, to say a prayer. It's a prayer of recommitment. It's a Hebrew prayer in which we focus our attention on God. We recommit ourselves before we head to the text to say, God, with everything we are, we want to learn, we want to hear from you today. So say it after me. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. Amen. We'll be in Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. It says this. These are the very words of God. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. We finally made it to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, shh, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So yesterday, my son, Micah, turned three years old. And we had a big party for him with everything he loves to do. We built a big train track for him. Uh, We had cars set up, and almost every one of his presents was either train or car or truck related. That's just, he's in a phase of just trains, loving cars, loving trucks. He's just like all boy in that way, just that classic boy. He's in that phase right now. But he's also in the why phase. And if you have a, a kid or if you have a niece or a nephew or someone you babysit and you, you, you have this, uh, this age uh, a kid, you know the why phase in which they ask you why about everything. Why? 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 But for Micah, he doesn't ask why. He always says this. He goes, why not? Why not? And I don't know about you, but whenever I get into one of his uh, sessions, his why sessions, I always feel like I'm in a therapist's office. I always feel like in the end, like I'm a little too vulnerable and I just need to take a break. It'll go something like this. Michael will go, Daddy, can I have a cookie? And I'll say, no, buddy. Why not? Because we don't have any. Why not? Because we didn't get to the store yet. Why not? Because we didn't have enough time. Why not? 
because we didn't plan well. Why not? I don't know. Life is hard. <laughs> Why not? Just get off my back, kid, okay? I don't need questions right now. You're alive, okay? You're alive. And certainly this can uh, stretch you as a parent and you learn patience with in the why phase. But one thing that, I, you know, that helps us as, as we're kind of going through all the whys is we, we have to recognize and realize that everything is new to him. He is encountering new situations, new expectations, new discoveries all the time. And it drives him to keep asking why. And I think we could, take, we could learn something from him. I think we could learn from our three-year-olds. Maybe that's in part what Jesus meant when he said you have to become like a little child. Because he's always asking why. And I think when we approach the text, I think we need to have that same spirit. When we read a passage of scripture, we shouldn't just assume, we shouldn't just carry with it whatever we read. We should be asking why. Why this? Why that? Why did the author put that in? Why did the author leave that part out? That seems weird. Why did he include that? In our passage this morning, Jesus is it's really strange when you think about it. I know for some of us, we grew up in the church. I'm the same way. So like Palm Sunday and the story of Palm Sunday, just like, yeah, that's what happened. But it's a pretty bizarre story if you think about it. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's going down the Mount of Olives, which uh, just by the way is a cemetery. Uh, we'll get to that later. He goes down the Mount of Olives and all of a sudden this like parade breaks out. Right? And he, he's riding this donkey. Why did he choose a donkey? And why does the, the Pharisees try to hush this whole thing that's going on? Are they just jealous? Do they just not like what's going on? Or why are they hushing it? What's up with Jesus talking about stones crying out? That seems pretty weird. If we take the heart of, of Micah or the heart of a child and we begin to ask why, what is actually going on here? we begin to discover that more often than not, the author is doing something intentionally here. He's doing something to help you to see something. When, when Jesus says something or does something that you go, huh, that's, that's funny. Why did he do that? It should drive us to say, why not? Why not another way? Why not this? Why, why not that? Why did he do this? Why did he do that? Why is Jesus doing this? Why a donkey? Why the Pharisees hushing, uh, putting the gag order in? Why does Jesus weep on the day of his triumphal entry? Why do we end this story that seemingly seems so triumphant and, and it's supposed to be this, this big coming out party for Jesus as he heads into Jerusalem and yet his reaction, Jesus' reaction is to weep. These are the questions that drive us. And to answer these questions, it will reveal that Jesus is doing something very intentional. He is offering another way. Because there's always two ways. There's always two ways. Now, the world at this time was ruled by the Roman Empire. This giant military global superpower ruled the world from England to India. And at this time, Rome was ruled by a, by a man named Caesar Tiberius. And Caesar Tiberius believed that he was the son of God. 
Some of the popular propaganda that would be going around in the Roman Empire was, there is no other name by which you can be saved than that of Caesar. People would often sacrifice to Caesar, hoping that he would forgive their sins. One of the common greetings in the Roman Empire as you walk the streets is you would say, hello, Caesar is Lord. Sound familiar? And so there is this whole propaganda thing, this whole belief system in the Roman Empire that said that Caesar was the son of God. Caesar, king of kings and Lord of lords. Now he runs into a problem because when you conquer the world, how do you control this vast empire that would some places would literally take a month to get to? How do you control an entire empire when it's so big and it's so vast and you don't have cars, you don't have planes, you can't get there quickly? On a horse, it might take you a month to get somewhere. How do you maintain control over an entire region, an entire kingdom, an entire empire? And so what Rome did was that they would break this empire into regions. And they would, appoint, they would appoint certain rulers to rule the region in its place. And so Caesar only had to keep his eye on a, on a certain amount of people who would then rule for him in these places that he couldn't get to. And at the time of our story, the, the region in Jerusalem, Judea, was ruled by a man named Pilate. And Pilate is going to have a pretty important role here in about a week from, or five days from now on Good Friday. This is Pilate, the same Pilate as in the crucifixion story. Pilate was the region, regional ruler who was meant to be there to keep control, to keep order, and to keep peace in his sliver of the Roman Empire. Now, Pilate lived in Caesarea, which was west of Jerusalem, and it was this lush area, and his palace was filled with pools and gymnasiums and gardens and anything else you could possibly want. Pilate's job was to maintain order and to keep these Jews under control. He doesn't want to rile up anyone, and he doesn't want anyone getting riled up. Because if words get back to Tiberius that he's not doing his job, that he's not maintaining order, his entire job security rests on the fact that he keeps these Jews in his region under control. All the pools, all the gymnasiums, all the gardens go away if he can't maintain order. And so Pilate's job was to make sure everyone was, was in its place. Everyone was doing what he needed to do in order to maintain his rule and his power over that region. This was his job. Now that's what makes the setting of our passage today problematic for Pilate. Because everyone was going to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover is this Jewish, one of the, the biggest Jewish, if not the, the most important, most significant uh, Jewish holiday on the calendar. It was a day where they remembered that God delivered them from the hands of a foreign oppressor, Egypt. If you take a look at Exodus here uh, on the screen, it gives us a little bit of, of understanding of what it is. And when your children ask, what does this ceremony, the Passover, what does this ceremony mean? Tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. If you remember in the ten plagues, the last plague was one in which he kills all the firstborns in Egypt. And if they had the blood over the doorposts of their homes, then the Lord would pass over them 
and, stri- and, and it would identify who was the enemy and who was God's people. And so he passed over them so he would strike down their foreign oppressors. Passover is the time when the Jews got together and remembered God delivering them from a foreign oppressor. Now, according to some Jewish historians, one of which is Josephus, he estimates that three million Jews would flood the city on this week of Passover. They would all head on the same day because it was, a, it was part of the ritual of selecting the lamb on the day, on the Sunday before Passover. So he, there was estimates that three million people would flood a city of just 80,000. And the city is only a square mile in, 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 in size. So can you imagine the mass chaos? Can you imagine that traffic jam, right, of trying to get into a city of one square mile that had 80,000 people? And now, and again, we're, we're estimating here, but a large number of people, millions, in fact, trying to all get in at the same time. Uh, when, we lived in Fair, when we lived in Rochester, we lived in a town called Fairport, and Fairport's right on the Erie Canal. It's, it's, it's a canal town, and they had a festival called um, Canal Days, and on Canal Days, it was like a whole weekend, like one of the biggest festivals in Rochester, and they'd estimate 100,000 people would come in two days into this tiny little village town that we lived in. And, and Molly and I, we lived right in the village. Like, we were in the business district. We walked out our door, and there were businesses everywhere. And so we always knew on Canal Day weekend, we were gonna, it was going to be busy. We would literally, on, on Canal Days, we would open up the door, and there would be bounce houses in our front yard. I mean, it was that kind of like, we knew, it was kind of like in a, in a storm. Like, we bought our, our groceries, we bought our milk, we bought our bread, because we physically couldn't leave. We were not, we were not able, because they shut everything down, and there was stuff going on on all the streets, that they would come by and say, are you okay? Uh, the, you know, there's, a, there's an ambulance if you need medical attention, but you know, either get in or get out. And it was actually really fun because, I mean, there's a festival in your front yard and the kids always loved it and we just had a really good time. But we, we experienced sort of that flood of thousands and thousands of people all coming onto one town all at one time. It just shut everything else down. Now multiply that by how many here in today's world. Everyone was heading for the Passover all at the same time. Now, if you're Pilate, this is bad news. You are the new foreign oppressor during a festival in which these people are remembering when their God struck down their last foreign oppressor, right? I will strike them. When, when you do this, remember when I struck down the Egyptians. You're the new oppressor in town, You're the new commander in town. And now some three million Jews are all getting together in the same town on the same week to all remember a time when God delivered them from a foreign oppressor. Can you see the trouble there? And Pilate realized he had a problem on his hand. You couldn't help but think, what if they started thinking that they could do it again? Your job security as Pilate, with all its palaces and beautiful regions, rests on the fact that you keep these Jews well behaved. What do you do if you're Pilate? So what he did, and the reason he's in Jerusalem at that time anyway, is he would send a message to the Jews. Don't even think about it. Don't mess with me. History will not repeat itself. Don't mess with it. And so he put on this spectacle as he marched from Caesarea 
all the way to Jerusalem. He put on this spectacle to communicate to everyone who saw and to communicate to everyone as he marched into the city. Don't even think about it. That's nice of your God, you know, a while back. That's not how it's going to happen again. And so once a year, he made a march, a parade, in order to show everyone what he was about, the power and control and intimidation that he could, he could bring to communicate to everyone who's celebrating on this day where the foreign oppressors are getting kicked out by God, not this time. So at the beginning of this processional, at the beginning of this march, I want to show you a few uh, images here to help put you in the mind. At the beginning of this march was a large, tall staff with an eagle on it. You can see it here in the pictures. The eagle was the sign of the Roman Empire. It was a symbol of strength and power. They would have it leading the charge, so you had no question as to who was coming. This was Rome. Don't mess with us. Roman soldiers carried then next would be standards. Standards were these, uh, these uh, poles that had the inscriptions of the different accomplishments that the, the emperors would do, battles that they had won, and, and ways in which they had brought down their enemies or anyone who tried to oppose them. They would carry these along as sort of like that symbol, and, and you could read them to say, this is what happens when you oppose Rome. This is what we do and so many, many standards would be carried behind the staff just to communicate and remind everyone of the past and what happens when you oppose Rome. The soldiers' shields would cling together to create this rhythmic trance. You would hear that. You would, they learned how to do this, and so you could hear them coming a mile away. You could hear this rhythmic trance of the soldiers and their shields. Bang, 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 here we come. It's all, it's all intentional. It's all it, uh, it designed to invoke fear and intimidation. And then finally, at the back of the parade, sort of like Santa on the thanks, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, was Pilate. And Pilate rode in on a horse. Now, in those days, Pilate, a horse represented military might. It was sort of like the tank of our day. He would ride this horse as a symbol of strength and power to say, I've got many more of these. Look at my golden white horse. Do you really want to try this? Did you read the standards? Did you see the soldiers? Do you see me up here? Don't even think about it. And this was all to create this visual and audio spectacle to invoke fear and intimidation at a Passover to remind the Jews of that very thing. Don't even think about it. And we find that Pilate enters from the west. He leaves Caesarea and he enters the city from the west. Now, when we know the backdrop to the story, we can start to answer these why questions. Why is Jesus doing this? Well, isn't it amazing? He's recreating Pilate's march. He's having a counter parade. While Pilate's parade symbolized, and this is your first fill-in, when Pilate's parade symbolized intimidation, power, and might, Jesus' parade is going to reveal a totally different way. Pilate's parade symbolizes intimidation, 
power, and might, Jesus' parade, his counter-parade, reveals a totally different way. Why the donkey? Well, in contrast to the horse tank, the donkey symbolized hard work, but great value, a service animal, but one of much and great value. And it was to fulfill a prophecy in Zechariah 9. You see, there were these many different prophecies about when the Messiah would come, and and these prophets of old would say, when the Messiah comes, this is going to happen, look for it. Or when the Messiah comes, this is over here is going to happen, look for that. So one of these messianic, they call them messianic messiah prophecies, came out of this uh, uh, um, Zechariah text. And it said, Zechariah text, uh, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, it says this, See, the king comes to you gentle, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. Next verse, I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. Jesus gets right on the line. He had been traveling. We've been going through this whole journey with him. He'd been traveling all of this time, and he gets to the edge of Jerusalem and says, stop, bring me a donkey. I want to say something here. And if you're a Jew and you know your scripture, and you see him get on that donkey, you go, oh, okay. He's saying something here. And unfortunately, they don't quite read further down or they don't get it. We'll come to that in a second. Why do the Pharisees try to hush him? Well, this actually makes sense, right? Jesus is doing a counter parade. And the whole parade is dedicated to show and to proclaim, I am the king. It's not Pilate. It's not Caesar. He's on the other side of the city. I am the king. And if you're a Pharisee, you're going, Jesus you're going to get in trouble. We know that a lot of Pharisees weren't bad guys. They actually warned Jesus all through Luke. They warned Jesus about getting in trouble with Rome. And here I think, again, I don't think this is the Pharisees, I don't think this is the Pharisees not liking what's going on and trying to tell them rebuke. I think he's saying, shh. The word rebuke in the Greek is the word to censor, to keep quiet. Because your demonstration is absolutely undermining Pilate's. What do you, do you have a death wish? Do you want to die? Keep quiet. Now Jesus' answer is interesting. Again, another one of these weird things that we need to ask why. His response is, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Where was Jesus? Mount of Olives. What was the Mount of Olives? The cemetery. It would be like Jesus walking the earth today in 2018, and he had come to Buffalo. He had made his journey to Buffalo, and he walks through Forest Lawn Cemetery, and everyone's shouting, and some people go, shh, keep it down. People might not like it. And among the tombstones, he said, if they keep quiet, the rocks will shout out. If you're the crowd, you're going, uh, the rocks? The the, the stones? Huh. And what Jesus is doing is actually fulfilling another messianic prophecy. 
Because in Ezekiel, it talks about God reassuring his people that one day he would restore everything and one king would rule it all. And one of the signs of this coming king would be that the gravestones would be opened and people would be brought back to life. Take a look at it here on the screen. Ezekiel 37, uh, verses 12 and 13. This is what the sovereign Lord says, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. The rocks will cry out. Hmm. And so the belief developed that when the Messiah came, he would open the tombstones and raise the dead. What happens moments after Jesus dies? Matthew 27, 50 through 57. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of their tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Whoa. The rocks cried out. The rocks cried out. You see, Pilate's way is one of death. Pilate's way is one of death. But Jesus' way is one of life. Pilate's way is one of death. But Jesus' way is one of new life. Pilate's way is one of luxury and force. And Jesus' way is one of service and peace. Pilate's way symbolized intimidation, power, and might. Jesus' parade reveals a totally different way. But there's one more question. Why does Jesus cry? Shouldn't this be a day of celebration? Well, up until this point, everything that had happened was orchestrated by Jesus. The counter parade, the donkey, the stones crying out. But there are two acts that the crowd do in response to Jesus and not initiated by Jesus. Jesus has initiated everything in our passage, but there are two things, and they're probably the most recognizable things we do on Palm Sunday. There are two things that were, that were initiated not by Jesus, but by the crowds in reaction to Jesus. And let's look at John, uh, uh, one of the other Gospels, to get our sense of what it is. And the next day, the great crowd had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. The palms and the shouts. Jesus orchestrates this entire parade. He orchestrates this entire way, a symbolic counter parade about what he's like. And the crowd see this parade and they respond with shouts and palms. And it's these reactions, I think, is why Jesus cries. Why? Well, waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna did not originate on this day. This is something that Jews had been doing for thousands of years at a Jewish, another Jewish holiday called Sukkot. 
Sukkot was a festival in which you recognize your need for God. Here's a passage just to give us a little understanding of Leviticus 23 that helps us with this. On the first day of Sukkot, you are to take branches from luxuriant trees, from palms, from willows, or other leafy trees, and rejoice before the Lord your God. And so Sukkot is the last holiday on the Jewish calendar in the fall. And in their climate, at the end of the dry season, it hadn't rained for six months. And they're just coming up on a little bit of a rainy season. And they needed that rain to, to, for the crops to finally make it, to finally get there so they could harvest and, and, and survive. And so Hosanna is the Hebrew word Hoshana, which means save us, save us. And so part of Sukkot, among other things, was a time of prayer for God to send the rain. And so what they would do is they'd take these big leafy uh, 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 palms, typically palms, it could be anything, a, a, a palm or a leafy branch, and they'd come to the temple, and for an hour they would stand and wave the palm branches and begin to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hoshana, Hoshana, save us God, save us God, by sending us rain. That's all they did for an hour. Sounds like a great, you know, for those of us who organize services, that sounds like a great service. Like, let's just all come, good Friday, we're all just going to come and we're going to wave things. Uh, no, no sermon, no, just wave things and then you, you can go. That sounds like a great, that sounds like a great service organization for me. We could take the week off. That sounds, that sounds wonderful to me. But that's what they did. It was this visual and audio representation of the Christ save us. And in fact, they say that when you wait, when big, big palm branches, when you wave them enough, it actually sounds like rain when enough people are doing it all together. And they would cry, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hoshana, Hoshana, save us, God, save us, God, by sending rain. Now, roughly 180 years earlier, before Rome, another foreign oppressor, the Seleucid army, captured Jerusalem and forbid religious practice. All temple worship, including holidays, ceased. Now, after a while, there was a priestly family called the Maccabees. And the Maccabees rose up and said, we are not going to take this lying down. And they engaged in this violent guerrilla warfare against the Seleucid army and won. Talk about an 11 seed going to the final four. Like, this is the Maccabees, like, going for it. They, they kick out the Seleucid army. They go for it, and they celebrate uh, this amazing underdog story of kicking them out, restoring the temple, restoring all the religious practices. And so they celebrated by creating a new holiday that you still were, uh, celebrate today called Hanukkah. Chanukkah. It's not Chanukkah. Hanukkah. Hanukkah is their remembrance of this Maccabean revolt in which these freedom fighters get together and say, we are going to kick out this foreign oppressor with violence and with force and reclaim everything that God had for us back at the temple. And they did it. And one of the things as they were restoring the temple, they realized that over the course of this time, they'd skipped Sukkot. They hadn't done Sukkot. They were, it was, they were in the middle of fighting and they, the, the Seleucid Empire still had control of the temple and they missed it. So they said, better late than never. Let's do it. And so two months later than it's supposed to be, they all gathered in the temple with their leafy palms and began shaking it together and praying, Hosanna, Hosanna. 
Now, imagine, if you were, something happened. And I don't want you to think about it too hard because it'd probably have to be something pretty terrible. But imagine, if you would, something happened so big that we couldn't celebrate Christmas. Right? I don't know. Don't think about it because it's probably terrible. But something happens and all of a sudden we can't celebrate Christmas. We can't gather. No presents. No nothing. Department stores. They don't know what to do themselves for four months because you can't celebrate Christmas. Now, imagine whatever was the problem then got resolved And come around February, we all got together and we said, you know what? We never celebrated Christmas. Let's do it. And so we all gathered for Christmas in February. We we hung all the stuff around the sanctuary. We got all ready. We had a Christmas Eve service. We exchanged gifts and we did it in February. We'd never forget it. It would be so impactful. And whatever it is that was wrong, we would, we would, we would read into it that way. And we would see the, the, the connections. And, and, and it would just be very spiritually connected. Christmas in February. Now, one of my neighbors is still practicing this because they still haven't taken their Christmas stuff down. <laughs> it is almost April. We are starting to take bets around the neighborhood of when they will take things down. You'd never forget it. And this is what happened to these Maccabees. And so they gather in the temple and they wave their, their branches and they cry out, Hoshana, Hoshana, save us, save us. But now it took on a new meaning, didn't it? Because now it's not just save us by sending us rain, but it took on this new political meeting in which they cried out to God, save us, save us from our enemies. From our enemies. God, you saved us once and we pray you'll continue to save us, continue to grant us victory, continue to grant us blessing as we continue to fight for it. And this meaning carried all the way until Jesus' day. All the way until Jesus' day because a new foreign impressor was in town, Rome, and the new freedom fighters were a group of radicals called the Zealots. And the zealots wanted to take a page out of the Maccabean playbook and beat the Romans at their own game. The symbol of their movement, no less, was the palm. Take a look at a coin that was minted by the zealots. This is one one that they pulled up from archaeology. On the left, notice the palm branch. They remember the Maccabeans. They want to be the Maccabeans. That's like they're heroes. And they said, all right, well, let's do it. And so their symbol, their, their, their brand, their logo was the palm What do you think their war cry was? Hosanna. Hosanna. Save us. Save us. Kick out those Romans. We're going to beat them. Hosanna. Save us from our enemies. And so the zealots with their minted coins and their war cries and their own propaganda began to fight the Romans about the time that Jesus was born and they fought them for a hundred years using the same guerrilla war tactics the Maccabeans did, fighting them off, going into an area, then retreating, hiding, because they certainly didn't have the numbers. They couldn't fight uh, one, you know, head to head. And so they took up this little town called Gamilia, Gamil. And that was their headquarters. And for a hundred years, they fought the Romans at their game. And finally, the Roman Empire had enough. I think it was like the little gnat that they were just like, "Ah, go away. (laughs) And finally, like, all right, that's it. We're going to crush this thing. And so an army of 24,000 marched on the zealot capital city, which is on the side of a summit. 
roughly 65, 70 BC, or AD, excuse me. And they marched to that zealot capital, which was on the side of a summit, and after 47 days of embankment, they broke through the walls and hemmed the inhabitants to the edge of the hill, and some 10,000 people fell 800 feet and were dashed to the ground. And to commemorate the victory and to shove it in the zealots' faces, Rome minted their own coin of a soldier standing over, standing over them under a palm tree. In your face. Don't even mess with us. We don't want to see your palms and we don't want to hear your cries. We beat you. Jesus sees the palms and he hears the shouts. The king is here. It's battle time. Kick them out, destroy them, kill them all. And he weeps. Luke 19. And I'd invite the band to come up as well. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You see, there is a king a procession on the other side of the city that embraces the way of the palms and the shouts. But friends, there are always two ways. There are always two ways. The question is, will you recognize it? The day is coming but you did not recognize the time that he's come to you. You see, friends, there are always two ways. There are two ways into the city. There are two ways into a conversation. There are two ways of handling conflict. There are two ways of working with a hard boss. There are two ways of dealing with jealousy. There are two ways entering a new chapter of your life. There are two ways of approaching a situation. There are always two ways. And the question is, will you recognize it? Because Jesus says, my way is not of death, but life. And my way is not of luxury and force, but service and peace. And my way is not of intimidation, power, or might but a totally different ways. There's two ways into a city. You can go the way of east or the way of west. So which way will you go? So may we reclaim the palms and the shouts, not as symbols of power, control, and force, but of a complete dependence. Hosanna, Hoshana, God save us. May we reclaim these images. May we celebrate them. May we continue to practice them today. 
but not symbols of power and of force, but of utter dependence on God. May we recognize that there are two ways, and may we choose the way of Jesus.